Well, good morning and welcome to Circle. My name is Paul, one of the pastors here. It is one of my favorite seasons, this Advent season, this Christmas season of waiting and anticipating the birth of Jesus. What could be a time where days are shorter and it's darker, it's colder out, blizzards come in, what could be a miserable time, a chaotic time, uh, a time where it feels like it's dark, we're reminded that there was a light that came into this world. We're reminded that in the midst of that, a present came for all of us. And it's in that season, exactly in this time, that we begin to decorate things and we begin to light things up and anticipate. And it's kind of just an amazing season to be reminded that even within the darkness, even within um, mayhem, God shines through and shows up in a way that's extraordinary. So for the last three weeks, we've been unpacking and looking at what happens when we look to ourselves for what is right. When we look within ourselves and decide, I'm going to decide to be the king of my life and I'm going to do what's right for me, what could happen? When we look to our neighbors and say, well, everybody else is doing it, what's the big deal if I do that as well? And when we look at that and we look at that human condition, we found that often it led to very bad places. And as an example to that, we looked at the, at the nation of Israel at a particular time when they entered the promised land and they had this 300 years before monarchy, before they had a king. And we use this verse out of the book of Judges, the kind of the way the book ends, and this verse is repeated a few times through the book, but the book ends with this verse that the author is trying to stamp or put a signature on this whole thing that he's written down to say this is the reason why it was so dark in the midst of this time for Judges. And he says this in, in chapter 21, verse 25, in those days... Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. What we learn from this verse is that Israel was to have a king, and their king was supposed to be God. God, who led them out of Egypt, out of slavery, has given them a whole bunch of rules and ideas and guidelines to shape them into a new humanity. Now, the reason we learn this, the reason we understand God had did this for Israel, was because when you're a slave, you forget what it's like to be human. When you're in slavery, you forget what it's like to have rights, what it's like to even want something because you're a property and you're used and abused. And even today, many of us find ourselves in different kind of slavery, whether it is to debt, whether it is to our passions, whether it is to some kind of drug. There is something that finds us in slavery even today. And so much what happened to Israel in this book of Judges leads us to understand that this is part of the human condition, that we tend to forget who our king is, and because of that, we find other kings in our life. We find other kings that drive us or pull us, and we make sense of them, and we justify them, and we believe this is what will make us fulfill a need in our life or give us hope, but we find them very temporary. And so it was the case in the book of Judges. We find that there was judges that God rose up. He gave them his spirit, and they would do something right. They would rescue their people, but then people would forget God, or they wouldn't look up to God, and they would look around and imagine that God was just like the God of other nations, and they would begin to copy them and act out like them, and they did what was right in their eyes, and they created moral mayhem. But what was interesting so far that we've been unpacking this for the last three weeks is that despite of their actions, Despite of their behavior, God continued to love them and care for them. 
that God continued to pursue them and would not give up on them. Despite of them misunderstanding him or not looking to him or forgetting him, God continued to pursue them and love them and care for them. And he would say, despite of your actions, I'm going to accomplish something great. And the book of Judges, because of this, is such an accurate portrayal of the human condition. Now, if you've missed any of these messages, if you're visiting, if you're new with us, welcome here. So glad to have you. But you can connect with us and, and hear all the messages on our app and online. You can uh, download the free app and, and connect with the messages. You can have all the media. You can have all the announcements and things that are coming up. You can also uh, have message notes on Sunday right there. You can make notes on your phone. And you can have discussion guides for your circle groups, which are so important to continue the conversation. No 30-minute, 20-minute, 40-minute talk is going to solve all the things for us. So it's important to engage with community and ask the hard questions. Yes, the pastor may have said this, but this is my reality. Where do I find myself in the midst of this moral mayhem or darkness? Or where do I find myself in the midst of joy? Where's God in all of this? So I'd encourage you to connect. I'd encourage you to check it out, to download it, uh, follow along, but also connect with a circle group if you're not already connected. Now, in the beginning of the series, those of you that were here, you'd remember I started actually with the last story of Judges, and it's a really extraordinary story, and it's really R-rated and messy and crazy, and it's hard to make sense of it. And we launched this whole series with this idea that at this time, when everybody did what was right in their own eyes, they did it by doing what they wanted, when they wanted, with whom they wanted. And I basically used the catchphrase that we use often, you do you. Now, I know some of you use that catchphrase differently, and that's okay. But I think it summarizes so well when we say you do you, and then we add this Canadian thing, as long as you don't hurt somebody. But what happens is whenever you do something, it affects someone, even if it just affects you, because you are someone, you are somebody. So when we say you do you, we often distance ourselves from the actions the person is doing. We don't involve, we don't interfere, we don't connect because we say, oh, whatever, man, do whatever you want, as long as you're not hurting somebody. But through the series in the book of Judges, we saw that every private uh, action had very public consequence. And so we've learned that Israel's story in the book of Judges had very human condition implanted in it. And so the tragedy for Israel is a tragedy for us. God established Israel to do extraordinary things. He said, you're going to be a light. In the midst of darkness, you're going to be a light to other nations that when they look at you, they're going to ask the question, how can we have that? How can we live at peace with our neighbor? How can we forgive people? How can we have these really just laws? But instead of becoming a light, what Israel did so well is that they forgot the character of God. They forgot what God is like, and they looked to their neighbors and acted like them. And by doing so, they would disobey God and face the consequences of their choices. But as I said just a little bit earlier, even though they did that, God said, I'm going to use you whether you, you like it or not. I'm going to use you to be a light to other nations, and often the word is they're Gentiles. So if you're not a church person, you're like, what is a Gentile? That just means anybody who's not Jewish. And God says, I'm going to use you as a light to all these Gentiles, to all these other nations, to fulfill my promises, whether you like it or not. And so you can either join me, which is my preference. You can either partner with me and receive this gift and have the true freedom by partnering with me, or you can stand back and watch me do what I'm going to do. So we find ourselves in this story in a very dark time in history. 
God is continuing his work despite of the judges and despite of the people's actions. And what I want to do today is I want to convince you, but more than that, I want to tell you that in the midst of that darkness, right in the, mid- in the middle of all that moral mayhem, in the midst of all that chaos, in the midst of all the time that people were doing right in their own eyes, God was actually preparing for Christmas. And he used two very interesting people. He used a woman who was so angry with God, who was so done with God, that she went to her own town, her own community. When, when it says in the Bible she went to her own town, it really means she went to her community, her people that knew her. And she said, God has abandoned me. He has forsaken me. And when I look at my circumstances, there's no evidence that there is a God. There's no evidence that God cares for me. Now, some of you may be sitting here feeling the same way. Some of you may be feeling that my circumstance surely dictates that there is no God. Why does he care? Maybe God is like the gods of these other nations. He's chaotic and unpredictable and doesn't have a plan for me, doesn't have a mission. Here he is on one hand saying that Israel has this mission to be a light to other nations, but he seems to have abandoned me. At least that's how this woman felt. And then there was also a story of this man who was extraordinary in the sense that he looked around and saw no evidence for God because of how people were living, because of all the moral mayhem. And he said, despite of that, I'm going to be faithful and honorable. And God uses this man and a woman to set the table and prepare the way for Christmas. Now, the story is found in the Old Testament in the book of Ruth. I'm going to just kind of pick out a few verses and I'm going to retell the story. And from there, I'm going to go into another story that it leads to because I think they're connected. So you can just follow along with me. But I I would encourage you to read the book of Ruth. It's very short, so it's easy to read. But then also, I'd encourage you to uh, go to BibleProject.com and watch the video on this as well. It's a powerful way of breaking down the whole story of what's going on. But I'm going to start with the first verse in the first chapter. And it says this, In the days when the judges ruled, So we find that this story is actually located right in the middle of the story of Judges. So it's a book that follows the book of Judges, but the actual chronological story is right in the middle of the time of Judges. So in the days when Judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now a map is going to come up behind me. And on this map, you will see, it's kind of hard to see, but you'll see that on the west side of the Dead Sea, we have Judah and Bethlehem. That's where they're from. And then we have Dead Sea, and then on the east side of it, we have Moab. It's another country. So this family decides to travel from their land to Moab. Verse 2. Now the man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kileon. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there in Ruth. I love that there's like so many confusing names here, except for Naomi. It's probably why we keep naming kids Naomi and not Elimelech. Although Elimelech is, it's a fun word to say. Um, So we have, anyways, sorry, (laughs) that's not in my talk. So so we have Naomi and Elimelech, okay, and they are leaving Judah. There's no food there. They're actually leaving Bethlehem, which should be important to us. We just sang about Bethlehem. And they go to Moab to settle because there's not enough food and they want to make a living for themselves. And they have their two sons and they get there and their sons are coming of age and they're like, you know, it's time for them to get married. But the problem is they're living in Moab. 
And one of the rules, one of the guidelines that God had given Israel is that they were not to marry people from other nations. Now we have to really carefully pause here because often when you read these parts in the Bible, we assume, aha, there you go. God is against interracial marriage. That is not what's happening here. It is not because God's character is constantly in his rules and laws about the foreigner, the widow, the poor, the alien amongst you to care for them. This is the character of God. So how do we best understand when we come to parts like this? We first have to look at them through the character of who God is, through that lens. And secondly, we need to understand what is going on here. And we learn very quickly the idea that God is saying, I don't want you to mix with the traditions and gods of other nations. Because God of Israel, Yahweh, is not like the gods of other nations. He does not want chaos. He does not want child sacrifice. He does not want those things. So don't intermarry because eventually you will adopt those things. And God is a jealous God, we read in the Bible. And I don't want that for you because I want true freedom for you. So that's kind of the narrative here. That's kind of what's happening here. But this couple finds themselves in Moab and they're like, well, we, they need wives. So I guess when, when in Moab, do as the uh, Moabites do. That's a saying. It's not a saying. So they marry their sons off to two, two Moabite women. And time goes by and Elimelech dies. So now it's Naomi, her two sons, and her two daughter-in-laws. And then her oldest son dies. And a little bit later, her next son dies. And now it's her and, two, and her two daughter-in-laws in Moab. And you can understand Naomi here, and she decides, God must be against me. We were hungry, we were poor, we didn't have work, so we traveled to this whole new land, my kids got married, we settled here, and now everybody, oh, my, my husband and my sons are dead. God has abandoned me, he's against me, he has cursed me. Obviously, this is what's happening. He doesn't hear my prayers. And so she decides to leave Moab and go back to Judah because she's now a foreigner and stranger in this land and all she has is her two daughters-in-law. And she says to them, look, I'm so sorry I brought this pain to you. I'm so sorry I have cursed you this way. So please don't feel bad, remarry, start over, I'm going to go back to my people, you stay here, and we'll be all happy, and this will be fine. Well, maybe not happy, but this will be fine. But one of the daughter-in-laws, Ruth, decides to stay with Naomi. Now, this is a very big deal, and I think it's, a, it's important to point out, because when we read this through our own lens, we could say, okay, cool, she decided, that's nice of her. But this is actually a huge deal, and it's a very dangerous decision. And it's one we must understand when we read the Bible, when we come to these places. What we've been talking about throughout the whole series, that this world, this moral mayhem, this darkness, this place that people have found themselves in, is a dark and dangerous world for women. Ruth said to Naomi, no, I'm going to stay with you. And Naomi says, no, this is too dangerous. I'm going to go to my land, which is a foreign land to you. These are my people, and they're not your people. And eventually, I'm going to die, and you'll be a foreigner in Bethlehem. You'll be a Moabite, and you'll be a Moabite in Israel, and it'll be too dangerous for you because someone will try to take advantage of you. This is not a good idea. You should stay here and remarry with your own people. But Ruth, out of her honor and faithfulness, says no. And we have this beautiful passage of ancient literature found in verse 16 and 17 it says this but ruth replied don't urge me to leave you or turn back or to turn back from you 
Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if, if even death separates you and me. Ruth shows tremendous faithfulness and honor to stay with her mother-in-law, to go into a dangerous place on a dangerous trek, to leave everything she knows behind, but to be true and faithful to her mother-in-law. So Ruth, the young Moabite widow, Naomi, the older Israelite widow, make their way to Bethlehem. It's amazing they survive the journey. They get into town and people begin to look at this older woman. They begin to whisper and they're saying, who is this person? Who, do we, I think she's familiar. Who is this person? Is that Naomi? I think that's Naomi. What happened? Where's her husband? Where's her kids? Who's this other person with her? And they're talking and they're, Naomi, is this you? And eventually we read this part and it's so poignant here. And, and Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. I want you to call me Mara, which, mean, which means bitter. Now, it's really important, and I talked about this a throughout the series, that, we, that the Bible is written, it's a sophisticated literature, and it's brilliant. And it gives us only a few clues at a time. Sometimes it's a name, which is very important to pay attention to because that name means something to the rest of the narrative, or maybe a description, you know, somebody was tall or handsome or short or, or ugly. Like something will be given as a description to pay attention to that. And Naomi, in her bitterness, in her anger at God, says, do not call me Naomi anymore. I'm bitter. And they say, well, why are you bitter? What, what's going on? It says, because the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty God has, has brought misfortune upon me. There is no God. And if there's a God, God doesn't know my name. He clearly doesn't care about me. He doesn't hear my prayers. And in that moment, it is as if Naomi is a micro of the entire nation of Israel that had said, God is no longer the God of Israel. God has abandoned our nation. Can you hear the pain in her voice? I don't even be, that's not even my name anymore. Call me Mara. I'm bitter. God doesn't know my name. Interesting side note that 3,500 years later, you now know her name. She's one of the few women of this period of ancient history whose name and story has survived because God had not abandoned her at all. And she becomes the epicenter of God's activity in her life. So the story continues. And when Naomi and Ruth arrive back in Bethlehem, it's barley harvest season. And this is an important clue as well. We need to understand this because some of us are farmers or some of you are married to a farmer or been to a farm we're in Saskatchewan but this is a little bit different and what's happening here there would be landowners who had acres and acres of land and they would plant barley and they would send their servants during the harvest time to harvest the barley and there was a law a law of Moses one of those rules that God had given Israelites to shape them into a new humanity and he has given this law to them and he says you you can only harvest your field one time and if there's anything left over, if you miss anything because you were in a hurry and you needed to get things done, if there's anything left over, you leave it. And you leave it so the poor and the widows can come behind you, come, come behind your servants, and pick up the remains of the leftovers. This is one of the ways that God was instituted, uh, instituting a just system to watch over the poor and the widows. God continually 
even in his laws, especially in his laws, continue to show his character of generosity. Now, to us, we may read through it and go like, well, they went once. What if they picked it pretty good? Like, the idea here is this law was so radical to take care of others that it didn't exist in other nations. We have to be careful not to read it through our 21st century eyes. This didn't exist then. These laws were specifically put in not to make people black and white, but to change their hearts to care for those that have less. So go through it once, pick up your harvest, but leave the rest for poor people to glean so others can have something. So Naomi says to Ruth, Ruth, this is a thing that we do here in our nation, and you're a widow, I'm a widow, go and start gleaning. Go get some barley, we need some food. We can't survive unless you do this, and I'm too old to do it, so you need to go. And so Ruth goes. And again, we need to be careful in reading this, because Ruth goes, but it's dangerous practice. It's a male-dominated society, and now you have widows and poor people isolated, picking food. And especially a foreign woman, a young foreign woman, picking food. It is a dangerous exercise for her. And she has no protector. She has no clan. She has no tribe. She has no family there to say, whoa, whoa, don't touch her or else. It's a dangerous practice. So she goes and she happens to choose the property of a man named Boaz. Now Boaz, we find later, is actually a distant relative of Naomi's husband. But at this point, we don't know this. And so Boaz goes out in the fields and he sees the servants going through and now he sees the, the poor and the widows going through and gleaning. And he sees this foreign woman out with an Israelite woman gleaning. And he asks, who's this woman? And they say, well, that's Ruth. She's the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And the story begins to circulate about this strange Moabite woman who had chosen to remain faithful and honorable to her mother-in-law. Even though he meant leaving her family and leaving her country and making this dangerous trek around the Dead Sea, and around the area of Israel to the city of, of Bethlehem. So rumors begin to spread about her. And Boaz is so impressed by her faithfulness and her honor. And, he has this, and in fact, he had this conversation later in the story. And here's, he says to Ruth, um, it says, Boaz replied, I've been told, you've been, I've been told all about what you have done with, uh, for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. We all have heard that you have remained faithful to Naomi, one of our people how you left your father and mother and your homeland and you came to live with people that you did not even know. She's never been in this part of the world. And listen to what he says to her. This is really interesting. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. In other words, Boaz says, I still believe, even in the midst of all the moral mayhem, in the midst of all the stuff I see in my community, in the midst of what seems like people don't know who God is, in the midst of all of that, I still believe that God is the God of honor. I still believe that God honors those who make the right decisions. For what you have done, you may be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. The very God that Naomi had assumed had abandoned her. And he says, under his wings, you have come to take refuge. And Boaz says something really interesting here to his servants. He says straight out, he says, do not molest her. Do not bother her. Leave her alone. She is in my safekeeping. He's so impressed by her faithfulness and her honor. He says, don't let anybody touch her. I'm going to be protecting her. She's an honorable woman and she did the honorable thing. She's not a foreigner that's coming in here to trick us, to take advantage of us. She's done the right thing all the way through. Treat her with respect. 
And we see as a result of this, she's gleaning and she's bringing a big harvest back. And Naomi is so surprised by this. She says, how, how are you doing so well? And Ruth says, I have found favor in the, with a man in the city. And his name is Boaz. And, I may, and Naomi says, Boaz? Boaz was actually a distant relative of my late husband. So time goes by and things are working out. But Naomi's getting older. Ruth is getting older. So finally, Naomi one day says, Ruth, look, you got to get married. I mean, I'm going to die. And once I die, you'll be on your own and you'll need protection. This is not a safe place for women. You need to be married. Naomi decides that Ruth needs to find what they call kinsman redeemer. Now, it's not a word we use often here, uh, but I'm going to try to explain a little bit. Kinsman redeemer is like um, that distant rich uncle that like when things go really bad, you're like, ah, it's a cousin of a nephew of a sister of a, but he has money, so I better call him because I'm in trouble. That's kind of the idea here. The kinsman redeemer is this wealthy person in an extended family somewhere, or maybe he's not even related, but he's somehow connected, that when people got in trouble, they would go and they would call him. And in this culture, kinsman redeemer would have to step in. He had a role to play, and he essentially had four things he had to do. And here are the four roles that kinsman redeemer uh, had to do. And by the way, another word for kinsman redeemer can be translated as avenger, which is kind of maybe a better name, but anyways. So here's the four things he could do. First is he had to protect the impoverished family. So a family found themselves in complete dire straits and they called on their kinsman redeemer. He had to help them out. That was one of his roles. He had to protect them. The second thing he could do is purchase lost property. So if somebody gambled away their house or, or gambled away their land or, you know, did some bad mismanagement, kinsman redeemer could buy back the lost property on their behalf. The third thing he could do is redeem relatives that were sold into as slaves. So you could, you know, if you lost everything and you owed people money, you could actually go into slavery to somebody else to work it off, and then the redeemer could come in and, and buy you back. And the fourth thing is he could provide a male heir. So if there was a male heir that, that died and there was nobody to continue the line, so the line of the family would not be lost, the kinsman redeemer could avenge them, could help them by providing a male heir. So those are typically the four things he was to do. And so Naomi says to Ruth, look, we need to find you a kinsman redeemer. We need to find you this avenger. Uh, so, um, well, to the best of Ruth's understanding, that, was, that wasn't going to happen because she's not even Jewish, so who's going to take me in? This is not my line. I don't have anybody, I don't have this rich uncle that can really take care of me this way. I, I'm not from Bethlehem. I'm a Moabite. And the way this would work is that... Uh, it couldn't even be Naomi because she's kind of getting older and she had to be connected. So Naomi can't really marry Boaz either. So how can we do this? It's all these parts playing. And it turns out in the story that her late, Naomi's late husband actually had some kind of land that was attached to him and somebody else had claims to it. And so Ruth, uh, Naomi basically says to Ruth, Ruth, I need you to go and ask Boaz to marry you. Now, that's an interesting thing, and sometimes when we read this story, those of you who have read the stories, we can read things into this story that aren't there, because we live in an American culture, we live in a Canadian culture, we live in a Western culture that's often very sexualized, and so when we read these next part, it could seem like, well, yeah, Boaz is like 65 years old, his wives are older anyways, here's this pretty young Moabite, Moabite babe, so of course he's going to want to marry her, but that's actually not what's happening in the story at all. It's not even insinuated because there's actually a big cost for Boaz to do this. 
It's a very risky venture because once a man would become a kinsman redeemer, once he would marry somebody, that person and all her children and all her relatives would have a say to his estate. He has no idea about these Moabites in, in the other country. She has no idea about her relatives. This is super risky and sacrificial decision because now you're having somebody marry into your estate and they can take things from your children and pull that away. And what Boaz is doing, what he's being asked to do, is actually a risky venture. And then he finds out that it's actually somebody else first in line that actually has claimed to uh, to Ruth and Naomi and this land is another distant relative. And so Boaz, in a time where everybody was kind of doing whatever they wanted, where everybody else could have excused things, and Boaz said, hey, I'm helping somebody out, or whatever direction we want to picture in the story could happen, Boaz does the right thing and actually says, no, I'm going to do the right thing, and I'm going to go see this other relative and give him the option to do this first because that's the right thing to do. He could have ignored this. He could have looked the other way. A lot of people were doing that. But we learn from Boaz here that he's actually faithful and honorable, and he decides to do the right things first. So they go to the city gate because that's where kind of things happen, and they arrive there, and they have this deal, and they talk it out, and he says, okay, if you want to do this, you need to buy this land, but then you get Naomi, and you get Ruth. You get her. She's a property. This is part of this whole thing, but when you get her, you might have to marry her. She now belongs to you. And the relative's like, no way, I don't want any of that. I don't, want, I don't know her relatives. I don't know her cousins. I don't need these people showing up and taking everything I worked so hard for. You are free to have her, Boaz, if that's what you want. And I don't know what this story sounds like to you so far, but Boaz decides after all of this to do the honorable thing. He goes through all the steps and he marries Ruth. And now we could say that in the story, this could be a great ending, right? Naomi comes back to Bethlehem, Ruth comes with her, and this honorable man protects her, and she's honorable, and all this stuff kind of really works out. Except that God in the behind of this whole story, and behind of the narrative of the judges, behind the story of Ruth, is doing something. And that is that God has promised that he was going to do something and accomplish something through this nation. And despite of their actions, despite of their ways of doing everything else, despite of them forgetting the character of God, despite of all the things that they were doing, God continued to establish and accomplish his will and his goal. And here's how the story continues. And so Ruth and Boaz get married, and they have a son, and his name is Obed. And Obed grows up and gets married. And eventually Naomi dies. Eventually Boaz dies. And when you read the book, of story, the, the book of Ruth, there's this tender moment before they die when Naomi's holding Obed in her, hand, in her arms. And she looks at this baby, Naomi, who said, call me Mara, I'm so bitter. And she looks at this baby and says, maybe God was faithful to me after all. Maybe God hasn't abandoned me in my old age. Maybe God is actually alive because I've seen God, redeem my family and continue the line. But then Naomi dies, Boaz dies, eventually Ruth dies. And Obed grows up and he's married and he has a son. And Obed's son's name is Jesse. And Jesse has a whole bunch of sons. And years go by and one day God speaks to the prophet Samuel and he says, Samuel, you need to go to, the, to Bethlehem to Jesse. And one of his sons is going to be a king. 
one of his sons I have chosen to be the king. And from time when Israel had no king because they refused to live as if God was their king, they did what was right in their own eyes and brought moral mayhem. From that time, God was going to introduce a lineage to the king. And so Samuel shows up and he says to Jesse, Jesse, I need to see all your sons. And they all kind of line up and some of them look like they could be kings. They're tall, they're strong. There's little descriptions there. And Samuel's like, no, 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 none of these. You have another son? And they're like, yeah, well, the youngest, he's in the field. Don't, don't worry about him. And Samuel's like, I'm not leaving until you bring him. I'm not even going to sit down. And onto the pages of history walks David, the second king of Israel. David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the husband of Ruth, the Moabite, who was faithful to her mother-in-law. And years go by, and another prophet, Nathan, appears to David, and he speaks on behalf of God. And, and here's what he says to King David. He says, your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And from this prophecy, the Jewish people and the people from the day forward recognized that it was this, that there was going to be a Messiah in this lineage. There was going to be a Savior. And we're going to be a king that reigned forever. The king would come from the lineage and the line of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the husband of Ruth, the Moabite. And David has a son who had a son who had a son. And about 25 pregnancies later, or to use the biblical word, 25 begats. According to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew writes that Eleazar, the father of Mathan, the Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called Messiah. 25 pregnancies later, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the King, was born on Christmas Day. From the time of Judges, when people forgot who was to be their king, God began the process despite of the rebellion and specifically because of his love for us. He began a process to come into the world just at the right time and show them the true king. A king that was going to be different than any other kings. A king that was going to be different than all the other gods of other nations. A king that the world had never known before. And throughout his life, he'd be referred not only as the Messiah, the Son of God, but Jesus, the Son of David, because he was born in the city of David, Bethlehem, the home of Naomi, who would bring a Moabite woman, who would marry Boaz, who would have a son, who would have a son, who would have a son, and many years later, Jesus was born. And we learn in the story that a few, few years later, Jesus, as he grew up, would stand in front of Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, and Pontius Pilate would say to Jesus, just in moments away from sending him to his execution, he would say, are you a king? And Jesus would look him right in the face and stare down the power of Rome and say, it is as you say, I am a king. I was born for this. But don't misunderstand me, Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. It is the kingdom of the heart. I'm not simply the king of the Jews. I've come to reign and rule in the hearts of men. It's the kingdom not of this world. Yes, I'm a king, but not the kind of king you think. 
It was the kind of king that the judges forgot. It was the kind of king that they always needed, but they looked for freedom and rightness in the wrong places. And where it took God hundreds and hundreds of years to prepare for this first Christmas, today, you have an opportunity with a single decision to become part of this story. You see, this is the beautiful part of the scriptures of the, what we call the Bible. It's a giant narrative that leads to Jesus and invites every person that encounters the story to become not just aware of the story, but to be part of the story. In a single decision, you can become part of the lineage and the story of this king. In a personal decision, you can decide to yield your heart to this king, to yield your heart to this savior, to say, no, I'm no longer going to be king of my own rightness and my own decisions. I'm looking for that freedom and I keep finding it short and I keep screwing up and I keep messing up and my rightness keeps leading me into bad places. So I'm going to yield that throne of my heart to this king. I'm going to yield it and so today I want you to consider something. I want, to consider, I want to invite you to consider something that you maybe have never done before, which is simply deciding that instead of sitting on the throne of your heart, doing what I want to do, when I want to do, with whom I want to do it, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, that I would rather recognize Jesus as my king and yield the throne of my heart to him and to invite him in my life to reign and to rule and no longer from the outside, but from the inside out. And if you will invite him to do that, I believe that you will do, what you will do is you'll stop worrying about losing your freedom and find the true freedom that God has always wanted for you. The same spirit that's, that was on Samson, the same spirit that was on all the judges, the same spirit that people ignored because they wanted to do what was right in their own eyes is available to you by making a decision and find yourself adopted into the story of Israel. So whether this is going to be a first time for you or maybe a renewal, I want to invite you and lead you in a prayer. I want to encourage you to, to say these words in your heart. Now, none of these words are magic. They're not. The prayer is an opportunity for you to express to your Heavenly Father that you're yielding the throne of your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and wanting him to be the king of it. I'm going to invite you to stand and bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you're in that place, if you've been like Naomi, where are you, God? Why have you done this? I can't even believe in you. Look at all the things in my life. talk to God about that. But maybe you're a little further along. Maybe you're ready. Maybe you're saying, all my own decisions, all my right choices have led me down places that were dead ends. It brought me to death and I need something else. I invite you to pray this prayer with me. Would you pray this in your heart? Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus is your son. I believe he's the king and I want him to become my king. I yield the throne of my heart to him. 
I believe that when he died, he died for me. I believe that when he died, he took my sin. Please forgive me. Please forgive me of my overt rebellion. And please forgive me of times where I accidentally rebelled. Forgive me when I just did what I thought was right. Open my eyes so that I can see the world the way you see it. Open my eyes that I may see myself the way you see me. And give me the wisdom and the courage to know what to do from this day forward. I yield my heart. I yield my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, we're going to begin a new series, The Upsetting Christmas. We're going to continue this story of the king entering this world. I want to encourage you to invite friends. I want to encourage you to come to this place and, let, and I want you to know that if you pray this prayer, you're adopted and you're part of the story of Israel and you have a king who loves you and who knows you so deeply. We're going to have a team up front. If something is stirring with you, if you made that decision, please tell somebody. We need community. We have gifts for you if you're new with us and information desk. Join us next week for Upsetting Christmas. Go in peace.